Hello and welcome to this week's book club. For the last two episodes, I found myself rather horrified by the behaviour of the characters in the chosen play. This time around, therefore, I picked a play that features an absolutely outrageous level of bad behaviour. Perhaps Shakespeare's grisliest, nastiest play. Titus Andronicus, according to some critics, is only still on our radar because Shakespeare wrote it. How did it make you feel? Dare I even ask if you liked it? I have to confess that I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Shakespearean film. I covered Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, Richard Longcrane's Richard III, and Julie Taymor's film of Titus Andronicus, which had come out just a few years before. It was a big deal at the time because nobody had even imagined that someone might find any way to film a play with that much horror. Taymor had directed the play in New York in the 1990s and the production led to a very stylish, expensive film. Conveniently enough, she had earned reputation and fortune by directing The Lion King on Broadway in between engagements with Titus. Certainly, my thesis wasn't especially interesting. I don't even think I have the heart to go back and look at it today. But the play stuck with me. We've been talking in this admittedly one-sided book club about how Shakespeare used English history and medieval Italy as lenses through which he could look at contemporary life in Elizabethan England. He did much the same thing with the ancient world, particularly ancient Rome. Later plays like Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra dramatised specific incidents in the lives of real people. Titus Andronicus, however, is not an actual historical character. While Polonius might refer to Shakespeare's other Roman plays as tragical historical, for Titus this is absolutely not the case. In fact, Titus seems to be a concoction of various elements of all of ancient Rome. Its characters refer to Ovid and to Horace, and the emperor is still occasionally referred to as Caesar, so it's definitely a version of imperial rather than republican Rome. The Senate and the people of Rome, SPQR, are consigned very much to the background in this play. It's all about Titus, the emperor Saturninus, and their extended families and associates. Over the course of the play, we go from Rome conquering the Goths to the Goths marching on Rome, and that's a historical stretch that goes for rather longer than any character's lifetime. Indeed, in this play, nobody's likely to have that long a life at all. There are some fabulous anachronisms and errors even in the play, most gruesomely the human sacrifice that happens very soon after the story begins. Titus Andronicus has come back from Northern Europe having beaten the Goths, but the campaign has cost him 21 of his 25 sons. He has arrived with Tamara, Queen of the Goths, as a war prisoner, along with her three sons. Immediately, Titus decrees that her eldest, Alarbus, is to be dismembered and burned to atone for all of his losses. Despite her rather reasonable plea that her son was only fighting for his country, Tamara loses a son, all but guaranteeing a sequence of revenges and reprisals for the rest of the play. In one of the best asides Shakespeare ever wrote, she promises that she will find a day to massacre them all. And, as you'll know, she comes pretty close. In his book about Shakespeare, Harold Bloom goes into some detail of how Shakespeare is in fact in a kind of a dialogue with Christopher Marlowe in this play. That Shakespeare was trying to compete with Marlowe's style and maybe even outdo him. 
The major way in which he does this is in the creation of Aaron the Moor, who is among Shakespeare's most blatant villains. Only Richard III and Iago can compete with him for outright gleeful treachery and bad behaviour. Bloom compares Aaron's aria of horrors, in which he describes some of the very worst things he has done, with Marlowe's Barabbas, who is another nasty piece of work. Marlowe was already very popular by the time Shakespeare was writing, and so there's something to be said for the newcomer trying to cut his teeth and better the instruction. For all of his malevolent deeds, Aaron is strangely compelling in his devotion to his own baby son. Titus's Rome is the kind of place where the greedy might eat their young, alas, in this case literally, but Aaron's ferocious protection of his child is something of a redeeming feature. The most shocking victim in the play, probably the worst treated in all of Shakespeare, is Lavinia, Titus's daughter. Improbably, she has 25 brothers and no sisters, making her all the more vulnerable and precious in her father's eyes. She has survived all of his time away at war, and when he returns she hopes she might marry Bassianus, son of the late emperor. There's even a chance that Bassianus might become emperor, but all of that goes awry. Bassianus and his brother Saturninus are vying for the throne, with Saturninus claiming his right as the elder brother. When Titus returns, the competition between these two is so fierce and the city is under so much stress that the Senate asks him, Titus, to become emperor. All he wants is to retire after so many decades of fighting, and in his exhaustion he defers and insists that Rome crown Saturninus. Big mistake. Huge. Saturninus is a nasty piece of work, and his first move as emperor is to announce that he will marry Lavinia, taking her from his brother. Her remaining brothers try to intervene, and Titus himself stabs one of them. He's now down to three sons, but at least his honour is intact. There's a terrible argument over whether the dead son deserves to be buried in the family plot, and Titus eventually relents, saying, bury him and bury me the next. Lavinia does manage, at least, to be reunited with Bassianus. Meanwhile, the jilted emperor moves on very quickly to Tamara, the Queen of the Goths. Within the course of the scene, she has gone from a slave of war begging on the street for her son's life to empress. As she puts it, she is incorporate in Rome. It's a fabulous word and will pay dividends later. Lavinia gets a single night with her new husband since the following day everybody goes out hunting in the woods outside Rome. Curiously, they go hunting for panthers, not an animal that was ever native to anywhere near Rome. But again, Shakespeare is pressing the wildness of this Rome, which Titus himself will call a wilderness of tigers. In the opening scene, he has lopped the limbs off one young man for a human sacrifice and stabbed his own young son for disobedience. Are we supposed to sympathise with this brutal man? The play is something of an exercise, given how awful he really is in the first scene, and then the sheer volume of tragedy visited upon him over the course of the play. For the record, human sacrifice was never part of ritual cult in Rome. It's purely Shakespeare's invention. And it makes you question whether it's the Romans or the Goths who are the barbarians in this world. While the hunt is going on, Aaron incites Tamara's remaining sons to attack Lavinia, since they both have taken a shine to her. These two hotheads are truly unspeakable, and they manage to murder Lavinia's husband and then use his body as a cushion while they rape her. 
they cut out her tongue and chop off her hands so that she cannot tell who did all of this to her. Maybe the most challenging piece of text in the entire play is when Marcus, her uncle, Titus's brother, finds her in the park and tries to use words to explain and to understand the horror of what he's seeing. The language is beautiful, even though what he is describing is appalling. It's so challenging a speech that many productions choose to cut it altogether. While this horrific attack is happening, Aaron is framing Titus's sons for the murder of Bassianus. He then convinces Titus that if he cuts off his hand, his sons will be forgiven and they'll all be reunited. Of course, this is a lie, and eventually the hand and the two sons' heads are returned in scorn to Titus. And this is only about the first half of the play. What follows is an outrageous descent through grief. There is laughter, folly, drama and even some very brutal comedy, all leading up to the dinner party that ends the play. Titus has managed to trap Tamara's two sons and he kills them and bakes them in a pie. In what must be the most unnerving dinner party in all of literature, Titus ponders whether another father was right in killing his daughter after she was defiled. Saturninus, presumably with his mouth full of pie, agrees, at which point Titus kills Lavinia. Then he tells Tamara just what she's eating and stabs her before Saturninus kills him, and then Lucius kills Saturninus and he becomes emperor. Aaron is sentenced to be buried alive, and it is decreed that Tamara's body is to be left outside the city and denied burial. This contrasts horribly with that word incorporate that she used at the start of her ascent. She thought she had become a part of Rome, and the last image we have of her is that she's denied even burial there when she dies. So what on earth is the point of reading or watching this catalogue of carnage? Elizabethan audiences, no more than us today, had a great appetite for violence and bloodshed, and the play was a hit. Sadly, the film by Julie Taymor, which is actually superb and very much worth watching, if you can stomach it, was a box office bomb, not least, I assume, because of the horrendous reputation that this play has. Any synopsis like the one I've just gave is unlikely to have them flocking to the cinema. But the piece is curiously compelling all the same. Productions tend to go down one of two routes, either stylization or realism. Directors like Peter Brook and Yukio Ninagawa depicted the play's blood with red silk and ribbons, while others like Deborah Warner and Lucy Bailey went the route of gore and immediate bloodshed. Bailey's production at Shakespeare's Globe in London was so intense that apparently people fainted at nearly every performance. Why would we want to watch such horror? Well, I do think there's something about watching horror, tragedy, goodness knows even the news, that is a very real and human impulse. Rather like the mirror that Perseus used to defeat Medusa, we use horror as a means of confronting nightmares that might otherwise petrify us if we attack them head on. Experiencing such grisly stories in an aestheticised way, a play, a film or the like, gives us the pity and fear that Aristotle described accompanied by a catharsis, and then we can enjoy the release of leaving that world behind. Certainly the catharsis of Titus Andronicus is absolute, since almost everyone is dead by the end of the play. Different critics have suggested that the play is something of a rehearsal for some of Shakespeare's later masterpieces. They can see King Lear in the story of a mad old man whose children defy him and then whose daughter winds up dead in his arms. 
There are traces of a fellow in the story of a decent but difficult man who knows how to be a good soldier, but falls foul of a truly evil opponent who wants to destroy everything he cares about. Of course, in Titus, their races are reversed. There are also echoes of Coriolanus, the Roman soldier who just wants to do what's good for Rome, but has an awful time when he comes back to the city after his campaigns abroad. Indeed, Coriolanus likewise ends with Rome's enemies marching dangerously close to the city. All of these are valid, and of course one can see them if one looks for them. But for me, this play actually paves the way for Hamlet. Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy was the revenge play par excellence, even before Shakespeare ever wrote one. Armed with its horror, and with the bombast of Marlowe's most extravagant villains, Shakespeare seems to be working things out. In Titus Andronicus, you can see him thinking, OK, the audiences seem to love a revenge story, they love violence, and they love a great villain. Check, check, check. Titus begins in a country whose ruler has just died, and in a surprising twist, an unpleasant and perhaps unworthy new monarch winds up marrying a queen. The noble statesman who might steer the ship of state is undone because of the younger man's reckless behaviour, and his daughter is utterly destroyed in the process. By the end, all of the remaining parties come together for an immense score-settling, and by the end of it, nearly every one of them is dead. The soldier who takes over is the one who has been campaigning abroad, eagerly trying to defend his father's reputation. Doesn't all of this sound a little familiar? Of course, Hamlet is a considerably more erudite piece of work, but I don't think Shakespeare could ever have written it if he hadn't ironed out his kinks and played to the gallery with Titus Andronicus first. Wouldn't it be fascinating to see the two plays performed in rep by the same company of actors? Titus and Polonius, Saturninus and Claudius, Tamara and Gertrude, maybe something terrific like Aaron and Hamlet. Although already I am sympathising with whatever actress might have to go through the double horror of playing Ophelia and Lavinia at the same time. But who knows? I think there could be something revelatory about getting the plays to talk to each other. I almost regret sharing this idea for fear of somebody making off with it. But if anyone is listening and would like to discuss it further, you know where to find me. Titus gives us tantalising glimpses into Shakespeare's Latin. There are quotations from Horace and from Ovid, and bits of the story echo Seneca and even Livy. We, of course, are stuck with the overused line that Shakespeare had small Latin and less Greek. So that tends to colour whatever ideas we might have of how much Shakespeare really knew of the ancient authors. I kind of disagree with it. I like to think that he was a lot smarter than people give him credit for. I have long had a recent book on the subject waiting for me on my bookshelf, and I rather wish that I had made my way through it before it was time to record this episode. The book is called How the Classics Made Shakespeare, and it is by Jonathan Bate, who also edited the brilliant Arden Shakespeare edition of Titus Andronicus. I found his notes on Titus extremely helpful when I was working on the play, and what little I've read of the new book is a terrific insight into Shakespeare's relationship with the classics. By all means, go find it, have a read of it, and let me know what you think. For our next instalment, I figure it's time for some real comedy. We will stay, somewhat, in the ancient world, albeit through Shakespeare's Elizabethan filter, and take a look at the comedy of errors. It is the shortest play he ever wrote, so I'm counting on you to have a read of it by this time next week. 
I actually worked on back-to-back productions of The Comedy of Errors and Titus Andronicus while I was living in Japan, so they both have their share of happy memories for me, and I'm happy that I found a way to juxtapose them here in this sequence as well. Although, I think we've had enough of Titus for now. The comedy is just as much fun in English as it was in Japanese, and I can promise genuine humour and far less human sacrifice. Have a good week, be kind, and I'll speak to you next time.